This is The Book Show, and I'm Louise O'Neill. For this week's episode, we're going to be talking about commercial women's fiction. Now, this is something that I'm particularly interested in, because for years I loved these books, but I was ashamed of doing so. I thought I was too serious and too intelligent to be reading novels about women's lives, their relationships, their hopes, their dreams. What is commercial women's fiction? Why do so many women love these books? And why do we feel ashamed of doing so? Uh, Tonight I'll be speaking to Emer MacLyset and Sarah Breen, better known as The Complete Ashlings, as their latest book, The Importance of Being Ashling, has just been published. But first... Um, I'm joined by Sheila Flanagan, whose book, The Hideaway, hit the bookshops this summer. I'm also joined by Carmel Harrington, whose new novel about homelessness is A Thousand Roads Home. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I've noticed over the last couple of years that the term chiclet has actually become really passe. I, I I don't hear that as much anymore because I think people recognise that it's a derogatory and often sexist way of talking about books written by women, about women and for women. And I'm just wondering, why do you think that change has come about? Well, I think, first of all, you know, when they came up with Chicklet originally, that was just a big shorthand for saying it's a book like Bridget Jones's Diary, because that was the, I suppose that was the original Chicklet book. And they were comedy books, you know, they were funny books. They were in some ways satirical, but they were taking a, an amused look and a wry look at, at women's lives and women, you know, worrying about their weight and worrying about getting married and worrying about their boyfriends. But then suddenly it started being used for every book that was written by a woman unless it was a very literary book mm-hmm. and it began to be used as a way to kind of put down whatever women were writing about and people would say to me do you mind your book being called Chicklet and I'm saying well if you have to ask me do I mind then you're already making a judgment about what I'm writing um, and I think ultimately people have realised that not all books written by women are comedy books mm. and they're not all about shoes and chocolate or romances, you know what I mean? Because I don't, I, that's a lot of the thing I hear. A lot of people just assume because I'm a woman that I'm writing romances. And romantic love is really a very, very minor theme in any of my books. And in fact, in some of them, it's not mentioned at all. There's love, but it's friendship, it's family love. And a bit like you um, in your introduction, Louise, that I have people that they will say, well, I'd never read books that you write. And I say, well, what kind of books do I write? And they were like, oh, well, chiclet. And I think, OK, that's always quite interesting to me um, because you'll find that they assume that chiclet is this word fluffy they throw about. Um, and then when you start talking about it, you know, with the themes that I explore, they're quite serious and they're quite dark. And just because I'm writing women's fiction, predominantly read by women, it doesn't mean that I am dealing with the light parts of life. There may be comedy because I think with everything that we deal with in Ireland, um, we do this thing whereby you're hit with adversity and you deal with it with both humour and pathos. And that is part of the story and part of the narrative. Though having said that, you know, there's nothing wrong with light and and death. And that does bother me. I think that people, uh, somebody once said to me when I, after my first book was published, they said, oh, now that you've, you've written that book, will you write a proper book? Mm. And I'm going, you know, it has a cover and it has pages. And, yeah. and it wasn't particularly light and fluffy. It was about a relationship that broke down. But it really is interesting that um, there's something in us that thinks that unless it's, you know, dark and miserable and really dealing with awful themes 
that it doesn't deserve to be read or something. I, I find that extraordinary. Yeah. I get it. You wrote your first book in 1997 and I'm aware that you were working in financial services at the time, which is obviously a very male-dominated industry. Um, I was just wondering what, you know, what the reaction of the people that you worked with was like when your first book was released. And what was the climate like at that time? The climate in my working office was very pre-Me Too. Do you mm. know what I mean? It was very, um, it was very well, obviously male-dominated and it was quite misogynistic. And there were a lot of the things that we had to put up with that you, you would call out now, but, mm. but we didn't because it would have been the, the 90s. Um, and so you put up with a lot of things and you also put up, I think, with a lot of mediocre men um, mm. being pushed ahead of you. And that was just the way things were. Um, and the first book that I wrote was set in the financial services environment, or at least partly so. Um, most of the guys thought that they were the lead character. Yeah. <laughs> I'm shocked to hear that. Um, and I suppose I was thinking about this recently because I was thinking about, like, I suppose the late 90s and the early 2000s. Sure. And there was just this, I mean... Women, Irish women um, who were writing what we would say now commercial women's fiction. You know, sure. there was Marion Keyes and, you know, Maeve Vinci and, you know, you and Kathy Kelly. Um, and I just, I don't understand why it wasn't celebrated more. Like, I feel like if that had been a group of young Irish, you know, men mm -hmm. who were selling millions of books around the world, that it, we would have been like throwing parades in their honour, you know, <laughs> bonfires it. lit when they came home, you know, from the UK or from the US. You know, Jonathan... Franson, yeah. um, Colm Tobin, um, Nick Hornby, all those guys, when they write about something mm -hmm. to do with women and when they write about something to do with homes, it's kind of, oh my God, aren't they so in touch with their feelings? How brilliant are they? Yeah. Isn't that so So you're So you're that. right about the bonfires, you know, because the bonfires are lit for them when they write yeah. about these things. Yeah. And also I think, and I'm not sure if you get this, but what I get a lot is, you know, is this based on you and this sort oh. of presumption that every time you write a book, that as a woman, you can only be transcribing your diaries, Absolutely. whereas women, you know, whereas men are creating this great art and I'm wondering do you get that a lot or what, what's the kind of the most offensive thing that people can say to you about I'm like dying to hear this now well, the most offensive thing well I would get that a lot you know they kind of assume that and if, if, if I'd gone through everything that my characters had gone through I would not be sitting here talking coherently I think I'd be you dribbling know, be in home. into my book <laughs> yeah exactly you know. and so that we are capable as writers of um, that's part of our job is to use our imaginations and to put our characters into different worlds and, and different situations and I think we can empathise and we're nosy so I think that is quite offensive when people kind of just assume that you can only write about one topic yeah. I think um, um, I got a message or not a message it was on Amazon or one of those you know a review site and uh, it said, um, Miss O'Flanagan's book was, was quite good. Uh, I read it in about two days. I expect it took her two weeks to write. Wow. You, I mean, if it's only taking you two weeks to write, I mean, you're, you've only I'm, written I'm a handful of books. Yeah. <laughs> I've weeks, just gone silent because I'm so dumbfounded by yeah. the rudeness of that. But yes, yeah, some people who, who make remarks like that. Because it's, it's easy to read, you know, and, I, and I'm not, um, I'm not making any apologies for the Book, yeah. for the fact that these books you know, can sit down and you can read and you don't need a dictionary beside you and you can mm -hmm. lose yourself in them but because they're easy to read people assume that you just you know, go up to your room, sit down and say, oh, I'll write about whatever it is. And two hours later you come down and the book is done. But I also think it takes a lot of skill actually to make it seem easy 100%. or to make it seem effortless because I'm sure you've read books where you just feel like every word is so forced and you can just feel mm -hmm. the effort behind it so mm -hmm. actually I think when someone says it was a really easy book to read you're like 
there's a, there's a, a skill and you. a lot of work going into that. I say thank you. Someone says to me that was a really easy read. I really thank them for the compliment because I worked hard to make it easy for them. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, Juno Ryan, um, who is the main character in your uh, book, The Hideaway Sheila. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, she's been dealt quite a few um, blows. Her life isn't exactly easy um, or effortless. Do you want to just read a little bit for us um, and maybe just um, tell us, maybe just give us I a quick will. synopsis? Yeah, well, uh, Juno has had, a, you know, a couple of bad moments in her life. Mm-hmm. Just a and few. <laughs> just a few. And she's had this opportunity um, to go and stay in a private villa in Spain. And she's thought about it and she's she's gone and she's hoping to do some healing there or maybe just get away from people, mm. getting away from people asking how she is, which is mm-hmm. which is some of the, something that happens, I think. You know, when you've been through a bad time, everybody's saying, are you better yet? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so she's gone here to, to try and get better. While the cat ate, I wandered over to the swimming pool It was very clear and inviting. And for the first time, I realised that despite the fact that the Villa Naranja had seen better days, I was staying at a private house with a swimming pool of its own, which meant that I could swim whenever I liked, however I liked. I peeled off my shorts and T-shirts and dived in. The water was fresh but not freezing, and as I surfaced, I felt a sudden explosion of well-being, a sense that life was worth living, that there was joy in the simple things. Yet even as all those emotions coursed through me, I couldn't help remembering that the only reason I was here was because of something truly awful. And I felt guilty for my moment of pure delight. Thank you for that, Sheila. That was Sheila reading from The Hideaway, her latest book. I I think actually what struck me there even when I was listening to that is, I suppose, how real that feels. Um, And I think that there's so many people out there, men and women, who can, you know, relate uh, to that emotion. And I suppose... Commercial women's fiction is so often described as escapist, but there's such a sense of, like, that's really grounded, I think, in reality. And when you're dealing with themes like like love and relationships, and obviously in your latest book, you know, we're dealing about homelessness and, mm. you know, mental health issues. Like, surely we should say that commercial women's fiction is more real than escapist. I suppose we should just call it commercial fiction for starters. Yeah, yeah you why know, is because there no men? Say women's fiction. It kind of, you know, it, it's okay. We're half the population, but mm-hmm. we're also excluding the other half Absolutely. of the population. And like you were saying, Carmel, guys are feeling, oh well, it's called women's fiction, so I feel a bit embarrassed to be reading it. And I would hate to think that men would be embarrassed reading it, but I absolutely agree that they probably are. And I write as as from the male point of view as often as I write from the female point of view. Mm. And my stories are very much family centric. Mm. And so it's just as important what happens um, to the man in the relationship yeah. as it is the woman. Mm. So I think that um, it's a pity that those aren't embraced by both sexes. And I think there is a bit of gender bias, unfortunately, mm. in fiction. Um, and obviously, as you said, in The Thousand Roads Home, we hear from both um, the, the man and the woman. Um, and it just seems particularly timely, I suppose, because we're facing such a huge Absolutely. homelessness and housing crisis at the moment. And what kind of research did you undertake when you began writing A Thousand Roads Home? Quite a lot. I mean, for, just, first of all, just to say that two years ago when I started to write this, I actually said to my editor, this narrative won't be as important when it's published because this will be solved. And I realise now how silly and naive I was because it's actually gotten worse. One of the big things I did was I wanted to understand what it was like to be homeless and to live in emergency housing in a small hotel as Ruth does in this book. So I checked into one with my kids without a car, with 40 euros of a budget, um, with our three suitcases. One was with toys, I have a six and an eight-year-old, so one was toys for the 
kids. One was um, clothes and one was photographs, books, like throws and cushions to try and make the room. And when we went into the hotel room, the first thing that struck me when we walked in was how big it was. And I thought, this is okay. What's the big deal? But if anybody listening has children they will know that within five minutes children will fill a room and my son had his Lego on the floor on one stage my daughter had her Shopkins and LOL dolls and before I knew it the room was full there was nowhere to hang clothes and um, it got very old eating pot noodles because all you can eat is what you can pour from the kettle and making sandwiches and ham rolls um we didn't have a budget to go to the cinema, no running on the corridor, all the rules that you get in these hotels. And by the end of the second day, I was crying for my husband to come get us. I was lucky. I could go home yeah. to a house, whereas for, for many people, this is their reality, not just for a weekend, but for, for months and months as they wait for affordable housing. But that gave me a uni- unique insight into what it's like to be faced with homelessness. And um, you you learn a lot about what's going on right in front of us, not just in Ireland, but across the world. And research was was vital because I'm lucky. I've come from a very different life. I'm privileged. I've got a family, a safe place to fall, but not everybody has that. Do you want to read a section from the novel? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, the piece I'm going to read is um, just the day that Ruth Wilde and her 10-year-old son DJ are made homeless. And they've really, she's tried everything to find a home for them, but there's just nowhere. Mm. Um, and it's it's just the moment that they're out on the streets. The day Ruth Wilde and her son DJ became homeless was just an ordinary day in Dublin. The sun poked its head through the grey clouds of an autumnal sky. Cars drove by at a snail's pace, bumper to bumper in their early morning commute. One, two, three. Ruth began counting steps to herself as she walked down the driveway in front of her flat. For most, it was just another thank crunchy it's Friday morning in the suburbs. For Ruth, it was a day of despair. Her world, her normal, was falling apart. She was not prepared for the unknown future that lay ahead. With every change that was flung at her, she felt like she was moving closer to the edge of an abyss. Ten, eleven, twelve. Wow, that's so powerful, Carmel. Thank you. Um, and I'm just looking at the cover there of A Thousand um, Roads Home. And I'm, I'm just really interested, I suppose, in covers in general, because I know as an author, you know, you don't mm. necessarily get to have... Yeah that much input in it. And then I suppose when you've been a writer for a while and they are like wanted to be branded and that it sure. looked like a Sheila yeah. Flanagan novel or a Carmel yes. Harrington novel. But obviously, you know, looking at that cover, you wouldn't realise that it's it's dealing with such serious issues. Do you know, do you have, do either of you have veto? Like how, do you have any say? I had to fight for this cover, I have to tell you, because while I get what you're saying, that it's still, it's a very bright cover that will stand out on a bookshelf. For this one, because it's told in the narrative of Ruth Wilde, who is homeless, and a 60-year-old rough sleeper who calls a park bench his home, it was very important to me that there was nobody on the cover. So this caused a bit of a problem because for the publisher... You have to trust them. And they like I'm with HarperCollins and they're amazing and they know what retailers are going to buy. Mm. And so they they have to be careful what they go for. So what we really push for, the main thing for me was that the title made up most of the cover, the bench is there and still hopefully readers that go for those kind of uplifting covers and the bright colours, they will be drawn to it. But at least it's not just saying that the story is about a young good-looking woman who's about Dublin. It's a very different story. Mm. But covers are tricky and I think we have to look at this from a commercial aspect that our publishers want to sell our books so we have to put ourselves in their hands too. Well, now one last question before we wrap up. Um, Which is more important to you, sales or reviews? So like good reviews or good sales? 
and sales, I'm going to say that, because then it's people who have actually spent hard money mm-hmm. um, and they, they have put their trust in you. Yeah. And so for me, it's the sales. A hundred percent the sales. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, look, I love to be reviewed in um, in the media and the news, you know, the national newspapers. Isn't, isn't that wonderful? But I, I wasn't for my first few books. I wasn't even looked at. But I was every book sold doubled the previous mm. book. And that was what was important yeah. to me. Yeah. Thank you both Thank so you. much for coming. Thank you. Um, so Sheila Flanagan's The Hideaway is published by Hachette. And Carmel Harrington's A Thousand Roads Home is published by HarperCollins. I'm gobsmacked. Magella, moving down home. Magella loves Ballygabard as much as me, loves the coleslaw and violence, loves the crack and Maguires, loves the matches. But I always thought she loved coppers on a Thursday more than all those things combined. I'm shook, to be honest. Sure half the country is at it, Ash. Rent is crippling. Our shower is broken and we're too afraid to remind the landlord we exist in case the miserable fecker charges us more. So we're just coping with it. If you're worried about paying your rent, you could always move down home too. Sure, you could stay with John when you need to. Now, it's 10 years since Ashling appeared on a Facebook page and it was turned into a book. Oh my God, what a complete Ashling! And joining me now to discuss the second instalment in what I hope is a very long running series, um, The Importance of Being Ashling, are the writing duo Emer McLeisett and Sarah Breen. Thank Hi, you Louise. so much. Hi. Thank you for having us. Um, like, this is genuinely such a phenomenon. I feel like people use that word like way too easily. It's like when people say supermodel and you're like, mm. I'm like, this, <laughs> is, yeah, this is genuinely like a phenomenon. And I, I know you've told this story a million times already, but can you just tell us like, what was the inspiration behind Ashling, and why did you even initially decide to set up a Facebook group? Like, why didn't that stay just a, an in-joke between friends? Um, well, as you said, Ashling was uh, conceived in an apartment we shared about yeah. 10 years ago. And we were just big messers. We still are. And she was a character we came up with while messing and just chatting about, you know, girls we'd seen in work or <laughs> characteristics we saw in ourselves, people we lived with, stuff like that. The reason it became a Facebook page is because that time was before the advent of like WhatsApp groups or really group messaging mm-hmm. at all. It just wasn't really a thing, which is yeah. hard to imagine now. But we were losing all of these funny Ashlingisms, texting them to each other and our friends were texting them, but they weren't being recorded anywhere. So it just seemed like the easiest place to do it. It was only ever supposed to be for friends. It was never supposed to be kind of a public thing or go wider than, you know, us messing. We really. never thought it would take off, basically. <laughs> yeah. So when Emer created the group, she called it, oh my God, what a complete Ashling. And we all joined our sort of core group of friends. And then slowly... Every day, one or two people would join, but we could always trace it back to one of us or one of our friends. And then one day, somebody joined that we couldn't. We were like, who is this person? And then I think you were in a pub and you overheard somebody. This was probably a year or two after the Facebook group had started, overheard somebody refer to somebody else as an Ashling. Ashling. And these were strangers. And it was like, oh, she's she's there. Look at her in the the world. It was in the vernacular. And then, so fast forward to when we actually started writing the book, um, I was watching Gogglebox one day and there was two guys watching a segment on TV about wedding dresses and on like television they said oh all the Ashlings at home are losing you know they're running themselves <laughs> That's and amazing. that was crazy like my phone yeah. I got a lot of texts yeah. Yeah. and I suppose for people now I mean for the two people in Ireland literally the two people who <laughs> don't know you know what an Ashling is who or what is an Ashling? She's kind of an Irish everywoman um, 
And when we started talking about her, we didn't realise how prevalent she was. She's in every friend group. She's in every office. She is the sensible type who carries her court shoes to work in a Brown Thomas bag while she pounds the pavements, getting in her steps. She can tell you the Weight Watchers points in any food at 50 paces. <laughs> she has never dyed her hair. She has a keyring full of loyalty cards because, you know, all those points are basically just free money. She, she never hoovers up coins. She has never hidden behind the couch to avoid the TV license inspector. Things that me and Emer used to do on the reg. And then she's like very loyal and warm and a good friend and, you know, good to her family and a home bird. And, you know, as well as all of the the kind of humorous characteristics, she's also just a really nice person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I personally am not an Ashling. I'm a Neve from across the road. Absolutely. Um, But um, um, actually what I really liked about it, um, even what you're saying there, is that, you know, you're dealing in, I suppose, a stereotype, but Mm -hmm. it never feels stereotypical. It never feels cliched. There's such a warmth to this book and to this character. And I think especially at the moment, you know, this idea of like uplift, you know, this uplifting fiction, which is just such a massive trend. And I can see, I suppose, why Ashling has been so popular. I remember Sarah particularly making an observation that recently a lot of literature has been about either people who are very aspirational or very grim. Mm-hmm. Very grim things are happening to them. There's, you know, not a huge amount that deals with the middle ground. So we feel like maybe we've tapped into that where it's just kind of people you can really relate to. Mm. And indeed. like we go into di- minute detail about things like because Ashling, it's all from Ashling's perspective and her point of view. But she thinks about like her observations are very small. Like she gets right in there. And I think that uh, that's just the way me and Emer are ourselves anyway. So that's how what we naturally are. Past remarkable. Very past remarkable. But people really enjoy those little bits and pieces. But I was saying that to you. What I couldn't believe was um, the bit about her mother hiding the biscuits. And I was like, my grandmother does that. And I absolutely, for years, have thought that she's the only woman in Ireland who has done this. Yeah, so, no, all the grandmothers yes, and all the mothers. It's just amazing. And yeah. there's all these little things, you know, and I think it's those details in the book that, you know, John Boyne called it, you know, the, the the voice of Ireland. And I really, I think he's really hit the nail on the head there. And, you know, with these lists are these kind of very specific details that ring so true. And I think it's such a cultural um, phenomenon in that way. But like, do you make the lists? Are, are there suggestions or posts on the Facebook page that you pick up on them? Where do they come from? Generally, We're just... not that organised. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's just observations from our own lives. Like, so one of the biggest kind of relatable things that people picked up on for the first, from the first book was missing the hotel breakfast. Mm-hmm. So one of Ashleen's main traits is that she would <laughs> yes. never miss a hotel breakfast. And it's one of the ones that most people have come to us and said, that's me. Uh, yeah. That's me. Because it's like no one has ever admitted it before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and like we've created this safe space. And I suppose being a duo, a lot of what's in the book we now realise is shared experiences. And I suppose when you have two people feeding into the story, you get a lot of that. Um, we recently, the first time we ever decided to miss a hotel breakfast. Yeah, this was <laughs> This huge. is what success has done to you. <laughs> well, I'm we so at, disappointed. <laughs> we were at the Listowel Writers Week, which is a brilliant festival. Um, and we absolutely did the dog on it, <laughs> which you have to do. It's actually the law when you go to Listowel. Um, and we uh, had partaken in some revelry. Uh, <laughs> I see. But it was all very highbrow, you understand. And then the next morning, I woke up and I texted him and I was like, oh, I can't go down. I can't. <laughs> can't. can't look at these people in the I eye. I woke up and it, 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 
immediately remembered singing in the hotel lobby at like 2 or 3am so we tried to sneak out of Listole without anyone seeing us we just were like we'll just get out we, we, we leave on a high we don't I mean, we did we trash the place who knows <laughs> and I just then, need to leave so we decided to skip the breakfast and then on the way out of both the hotel and the town we met every single person that we had seen God. the night before it's your worst nightmare <laughs> we, met the man, we met the man from Jumbo's the chipper in Listole <laughs> who had served us our chips at you know 2am the night before it was like people were popping up out of flower pots and going there's the girls <laughs> how's the heads how are you this morning we had a great time uh, it was great recommend yeah, it you're never being invited back I've heard <laughs> I've heard you know we had uh, Sheila Flanagan and Carmel Harrington um, on the show earlier and you know they were just tackling about I suppose you know dealing with more serious issues and what I thought was beautifully done in the first book um, was the way that you handled abortion um, and obviously you know there's death and there's you know mm-hmm. there's grief as well um, and in the new book, um, The Importance of Being Ashling, there's a thread about domestic and emotional abuse, which again, I thought was beautifully handled, um, particularly the emotional abuse, which I think sometimes gets overlooked. Um, is that important to you? Is that something that you're going to look at maybe w- with the series going forward? Well, we wanted to be able to reflect issues that were important to Irish women. And that's why the abortion issue was so prevalent in the first book. Mm. It was just it just wasn't realistic to write something about 2017 or 2018 Ireland without addressing it. Mm. And then the second book is is about a lot of the women in Ashling's life and again it just wasn't realistic not to tackle some of the issues that you know aren't as frivolous and aren't as humorous and aren't as not forgetting a bag for life or something like that. Yeah, yeah things that go on behind closed doors. Um and yeah, we're now working a little bit with Women's Aid. Um, they have an excellent campaign called Two Into You, which is about dating abuse and dating violence. Um, and again, it's one of these issues that's a bit stigmatised and you hear the refrain, why didn't you leave or yeah. whatever. But we mm. all know that it's not so easy to leave these situations. And all of this is seen through Ashling's lens and she knows you know, how important it is to be supportive. Um, and I think that we want to write books that have meat in them. Yeah. We don't want them to be, you know too shallow mm, um, yeah. well you're, you're definitely succeeding well the feedback um, has that. been amazing yeah. you know and yeah. if they if you know reading a storyline like that empowers one woman to say something to a friend or whatever that will be the job done for yeah. us I think. we touch on as well kind of the rental crisis and it all kind of feeds in so if you have a woman who's kind of struggling in the home she's in but she can't leave and you know so it, it all kind of feeds into each other yeah no absolutely um and also, thank you for doing someone moving home with their parents. You'll be making that cool again. And I started it. <laughs> it is cool. Um, <laughs> um, and one final question now before we go. Um, this weekend, I, I got the train from Cork to Dublin and the woman sitting opposite me was reading Ashling. I passed three different people um, this weekend who all had the book in their hands. Um, and you, you, I mean, I haven't seen that since like Harry Potter. I'm like, have you, do, what do you do? Have you seen it? Do you go up? Do you kind of have this temptation to go you know, I wrote that. <laughs> it has been really crazy. Like, Emer, you were supposed to send a copy of the book when it came out to somebody who was going on honeymoon, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, so a friend's cousin was going on honeymoon and he had said, oh, I'm afraid the book isn't going to arrive in time. It was just the week the book came out. And so I sent one to England, hoping it would get to him in time and it didn't. But he arrived in Mexico and met an Irish girl who was staying in the same hotel and he said, I don't suppose you happen to have that new Ashling book. And she reached into her bag and out came Amazing. the book. So he sent a great picture of him reading it by the pool. I mean, that is, I mean, that's it. That is exactly, as I said, it is a phenomenon um, and long live Ashling is all I'm going to say. Um, so thank you for joining me, Emer and Sarah. And their new book, The Importance of Being Ashling, is published by Gill. The series producer is Zoe Cummins. 